Dr. Coons, what is idolatry? Idolatry is when the heart is misaligned, when it trusts in something that's false on the basis of something it was told to believe or convince itself to believe. And it has a false God rather than the true God. What does that look like? I mean, like, to be clear, like it used to be statues or something. And now it's not right. It's never something you look at now. Now it's just in the heart alone, money or something. I don't know. I I wonder really, I mean, has anything changed is my real question. Well, human beings haven't changed, but I think that the nature of the occupation of idols or the space they occupy, let's say more clearly, has become different. They used to occupy and and maybe do in some societies, but not generally in the West, public space and then private space in the home where you have the household altar. In the West today, the idols are generally occupiers of time rather than space. So time spent on them, time feeding them, time worshiping them, whatever whatever that means according to your idols, because the idols have enormously diversified their business uh, since antiquity. And rather than covering simply traditional things such as war, or the welfare of the state or childbirth, they now multiply and individualize. And so we don't necessarily have gods in common at all with our neighbors, which would be unthinkable in antiquity. But that's because they're occupiers of time, which is so much more various according to the human person than space, which we by its nature have to share. Hmm. It makes me wonder a little bit about the sort of Gnostic tendencies of the present age, that everything is ideology as opposed to uh, what nature. The Gnostics in antiquity are unique in their focus on the idea that matter is the problem. I know that that gets projected onto Plato, but it simply isn't true. Created things are vehicles for understanding of higher realities, which in in itself, as I say that, you can probably see how that can be reconciled with Christianity philosophically and was extensively by almost everyone in East and West. Gnosticism ends up being libertine in antiquity and in modernity because of indifference to material things, indifference to the body, to what we now call biological sex, what used to be called gender, all sorts of things like that. And I I, I am not sure that that is as, I'm not sure what the word Gnostic means at this point because it's used so widely. Um, However, there are resemblances between ancient Gnosticism or Gnosticisms, which is the debate that people studying antiquity have, how many were there? However many there were, the resemblances are a, kind of a, an assumed materialism. Material is all there is. And then because of the assumed materialism, a practice of doing whatever you want, especially with your body, that extends to food and sex and lots of other things. And it does have that in common with whatever it is that we want to call the common religion of our our time and place. Is there something to the idea that the ancient gods wouldn't have sounded like gods as people spoke about them? Or maybe that we're just blind to the gods we speak about? I think of the Nacho Libre line, you know, why do you hate me? Because I believe in science. Uh, you know, is science a god, an idol, 
Um, or if not, I mean, can you give me your top five modern idols? <laughs> well, the list is a lot more fun than than answering the you know kind of uh, more standard question before that. So let's do the list. The list the the first the first one is always Mammon because he's the one that takes care of all of the other things that you might want. So I don't want to reduce that just to money because people aren't even satiated by him when they have lots of money sometimes. So Mammon, the the love of money. And then after that, depending on, it really depends on time of life. Also gender, it could be that you desire, if you're a woman to be protected and to be loved, not even necessarily to love, but to be loved by someone. Um, If you're a man, you might desire fame or approval or respect. Both sexes desire sexual activity, but the natures of those desires are so perverted and inverted because of widely available pornography. It's kind of hard to say sex, strictly speaking. Yeah, right. Well, the old word porneo works pretty well, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sexual immorality, uh, fornication, because, uh, you know... uh, a man and a woman who are not married to each other, sleeping with each other physically, I've taken to calling old-fashioned adultery. You know, <laughs> yeah, right. It, just, it has sort of a vintage feeling about it, like 1950s diners. So so money, the love of money, uh, sex. After that are going to be things particular to the human person, but you know, based on their sex, their age, but they're always going to be things that drive them. And this is something that I think is missed in most apologists, except people like C.S. Lewis, who understand that people are not basically logical creatures. Right. So that's why he uses imagination so well, because he understands that human beings are driven by things that are deeper, harder to contact or understand. So, you know, if you're talking about the West, it's always going to be sublimated under some set of activities or time. Lots of people want to be seen to be a good person. That's not true for every population, but that's that's really important to a lot of people. That drives a lot of their social behavior. So however they understand a good person behaves, that's what they want to be understood as doing. So I know I'm being nebulous and have only named three ones, but I, I think that's because the reason that I stopped doing new members classes and switched to individualized instruction by person or by family was because I found that whether people were coming from another church or nothing, they were so different from each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I couldn't, I could not handle the idols in scattershot fashion. I had to, I had to be more like a, I had to use a sniper rifle instead of a shotgun with people's idols. So in one sense, then what I'm getting is that the idol is the image that you would have yourself be. And, uh, you, you know, whether that's a statue or not, it is something which you are projecting as a future into your reality on the basis of, I don't know, a story. Um, with that, and feel free to respond to that. So were the ancients really so stupid as to think they were worshiping statues? No, they were not. And they, they explicitly were not. Even when they were talking to Christians about Christianity, they said, you know, your polemic against statues is stupid because we have long ago recognized that we, and some of us never thought that we were actually worshiping metal and wood. The, the issue, however, is that you may not actually intend, and this is part of the nature of demons, 
you may not intend to become like what you worship. Mm-hmm. Um, those who make them become like them, mm-hmm. but um, that may not have been their intention. They may have simply desired to propitiate some force in their lives or to be seen to be a good person. They didn't understand what would happen when they engaged in quote, being a good person. So I think that that that's important to state because there's just, there's so, there's so much unconsciousness in the way that the watchers or the demons work upon us that when I talk about historical facts, I think people need to recognize that we're not discussing things that were in the nature or have to be in the nature of some sort of overarching world conspiracy. And after a certain number of episodes, I'm going to tell you it's the Jesuits, it's the Freemasons, it's the Jews, because when you think about things that way, you are reducing to a unity things that by their nature are legion. Amen. Yeah. When, yeah. when you have so many temptations and pitfalls and difficulties, even in your own individual life, let alone in the history of our nation, then you cannot reduce them to a single agency uh, apart from Satan himself. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, that's why I try not to stress, let's say like conspiracy, not as saying that conspiracies never happen, but conspiracy as a way of thinking about what is wrong, because there is that, what that simply permits is an outsourcing of the evaluation of one's own life that you should be engaging in. Because especially part of the stuff we're going to be talking about today and next week, as we finish up talking about collapse of privacy these are <laughs> these are almost entirely all American characters, okay? So the destruction of our own privacy came about largely from within. You know, after a certain number of years, there's going to be heavy involvement, as I uh, posted in the Discord a couple of days back, by Israeli security companies. But that only really got going in the 80s. And we were pretty far gone by then mm, by as then. to the loss of privacy. So I think that when you when you want to outsource the problems in your life, especially to a single hidden operative power, you are foregoing the responsibility to spot the multiplicity of evil, right? That, that evil appears in multiple forms, even in a given human soul, let alone in the history of a nation. Yeah. So, so if I'm like, Oh, it's Jewish and the Jews, they rule the world and bankers and all, all I'm doing is avoiding my neighborhood actually. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding what I can actually fight and engage. It may as well be a boogeyman at the end of the day, even if you're right. And, and that seems to be, um, its own form of idolatry, if I can say it that way. I, I, well, I think the way that you can tell that it is idolatry to, to find, you know, a singular agent behind the problems in your country is that it induces paralysis yeah right or or mania and and both those are bad things i think on the other hand it's important to say that and this will come up when we talk about hollywood because there's an entire book about this how the jews created hollywood that's the subtitle empire of their own is the main title you have to be able to be honest that human beings exist in groups and operate as groups if you can't be honest about some groups you really can't be honest about any groups and the stakes are actually pretty high because like if you're white, you're kind of like you're you're pretty evil as a group right now in most people's telling or in mm-hmm. mainstream telling. So it's really in my interest, to be honest, about groups when they exist, when they don't exist and what they've done, if they did exist and did do something. 
But the issue is that somebody saying, well, you know, all the problems are the Jews or the Freemasons or something. Freemasons is kind of the popular one with John Birch Society, which takes us back a little ways. That is a mirror image of 1619 Project explaining, uh, really, let's be honest, white people. I know they say whiteness, but there really isn't a difference. White people as the origin of America's evils. Because at that point, that group of human beings, I mean, the only solution is to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why I've talked before about the rhetoric used about whites in the United States currently is both conspiracy thinking, right? The whole problem is these people who have induced paralysis in us, and that's why we're poor and et cetera, et cetera. That's why we suffer adverse health outcomes, et cetera. It's very conspiratorial. Simultaneously, it's potentially genocidal because you identify the group. The group is the sole source of all of your problems. And from there, the solution to those problems is not change in you, which is part of the Christian message. That's the message of repentance. The The issue is you need to change everything by getting rid of them. And, you know, I don't, I don't want the listeners to be either dishonest about history, but also not attribute too much agency to any human actor. Demons don't need a single group to get done what they want to get done in your life. As I've tried to share that idea with others that, you know, largely what we're dealing with is incompetence in our leadership. And that if there's anything going on, it's dark powers that are behind the whole thing. It's, it's really... It's really stunning how many people just stare at me with their mouth open and then kind of disagree. Um, but let me let me digress from that and ask. Yeah, sure. this, this may be way back in it a little bit, but can you distinguish okay. between an idol and a relic, or do you? A relic is some sort of derivative power. So, to give you an example, the idol would be the prognostications. Let's be honest, the astrological predictions of Anthony Fauci or the CDC, or the NIH. The relics of those things would be things like masks hanging from your rearview mirror, like a talisman, or a relic would be your vaccination card or your COVID green pass in Europe. Those would be relics. So they, they transmit power from the idol or idols, but they are not the source of faith or the object of faith themselves. So in that way, all the old statues were effectively relics. Yeah. Yeah. If right. you're thinking, okay. If, if you're thinking about it like an intellectual, which yeah. is what the pagans responding to the Christians are everyday people may not think of it that way. They may think that the relic and the idol are the same thing. So that's why they get so heated about the fact that you are not wearing a mask because for them, the mask insulting the mask is the same thing as insulting the idol. You hate science or you hate other people's health or you hate whatever. Yeah. 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 All right. So, well, we've already kind of gotten into the watchers and their watching and this idea. This has been several episodes now that we're kind of the the gloves are off or fighting the demons Uh, from there. You know, which watchers are which, right? I mean, you got, you got, you got, you got the hidden, you got the powers, you got the aliens, you got the layers, and then you got the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, and then you got what? Uh, Google, Facebook. I mean, which watchers are we most, which watching, watch where we're reading? I just try to say W words to make it work. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think that it, this, if there's one takeaway from this week or next week for the listener to remember, it's that the reason to know history is because that is the theater of good and evil. Hmm. Nice. And so when you think about 
the history of our loss of privacy, which I'll talk about a little bit with both the NSA, but also its predecessors today, what you're looking at is the loss of the capacity to have things that are private to you, both a violation of law of many kinds, but also a spiritual loss of a place for consideration or reflection or contemplation. And that means that I don't have to have like some kind of demonic figure with a human name and a social security number to give to you so that you can direct all of your venom at him uh, posthumously in the case of the people we're talking about today. History is the place where you learn just as thinking about your own life is the place where you learn about what has gone wrong and what ought to be changed. So when we think about these different agencies or something, remember that multiplicity is in the nature of evil and unity is in the nature of good, right? You, you get stresses on unity throughout the New Testament because you only have the one God and he only has the one church and et cetera, et cetera. So multiplicity is going to be in the nature of tales like the disappearance of privacy because it is in the nature of evil. So it will be manifold and, and various and strange. That's a really fascinating idea. It, it calls a proverb to mind. I think it's something like, uh, oh, I can't get it as a quote, but it's like, you know, when there are many rulers, the land doesn't do well, right? It, it's something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too many chiefs, not enough Indians. Yeah. So the watching began after World War One for yeah. the safety of America, for our security, right. for the sake of our way of life, to preserve it so no one ever take it away from us. Correct? Right. Because And we talked about the American Black Chamber last time. But something to note here is that, you know, I gave you the, the phrase from, this, from the Secretary of State, Henry Stimson, who said, gentlemen, do not read gentlemen's mail. What that effectively did, though, was that the desire by whatever remained, and it really is true that our government was extremely small in you know 1927 relative to what it had been a decade earlier and what it would be um, a little more than a decade later. What the government did at the point where the Black Chamber was shut down because of the objection of the Secretary of State was it moved all of those responsibilities for interceptive signals. And they used signal to cover everything from telegraphs to telephones to radio broadcasts to later on transmissions of other kinds, as well as letters, physical letters. And they moved those capabilities over to something called the Signal Intelligence Service. This is run by a man named William Friedman, who is Jewish, but this is not an instance of, you know, an ethnic behavior in any way, because all the people he hires are Southerners, if I remember correctly. Can you say the title of that again? What's it called again? The Signal Intelligence Service. The SIS. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Signal Intelligence <laughs> Service. Okay, sure. And this is going to form inside what's then still called the War Department. And Friedman actually had a past with the War Department in that he ran this general, very general, everything from genetics to cryptology, which is the science of codes generally, both making them and breaking them, at an institute called Riverbank outside Chicago, uh, which was funded by a millionaire nebulously called Colonel, nobody's really sure why, Galgan, during the First World War. 
And so the black chamber that we talked about last time was official, but Riverbank was not. And most military officers who received training during the first world war in cryptology went to Riverbank. This is a really interesting and very, very early, like 1917 example of a nexus between congressional funding, things that are not exactly authorized by law, signal intercepts that are definitely not authorized by law, and this nexus between government contracting and military needs, especially during wartime, that you're going to see throughout American history, at least from that time onward, if not at before then. Which if I'm not if I'm reading this right, this is always going to open you up to foreign investment and uh, influence, correct? Well, yeah, because what's going to happen is that although Friedman is going to move on from Riverbank, he actually tries to get a job working as a geneticist. That's what he likes the best, but he can't get a job doing that in the early 20s. So he goes back into cryptology working for the War Department. The the interplay here will be that what they need right away is linguistic expertise. So they'll get a guy that's really good at German, really good at French, really good at Japanese. We're particularly worried about the Japanese in the 20s, the 30s. I mean, our run up to the Second World War is dominated by concern about the Japanese. Well, I mean, they, it, they're basically prepping for it, though, right? I mean, right. But yeah. let me let me say this like really in this very explicit way. William Friedman is ethnically Jewish. The reason I mentioned that is to make more glaring this fact. When he invests long before Pearl Harbor in vastly increased resources, personnel in the Signal Intelligence Service. So they're going to go between 1927 with seven employees, including himself, all the way up to thousands on the eve of Pearl Harbor. Okay. He will, he, William Friedman, will invest almost nothing in monitoring the Germans. Our entire concern the stations that we built, the intercepts that we had running all up and down the Americas, as well as in East Asia, our entire concern is stopping the Japanese in Asia. So this is something to remember is that when you're, when you're taught about things like World War II or lots of other things, just you, you have to look not at what you're told occurred, but at what occurred. And he invested almost no infrastructure and very, very few linguists in an easy to learn Germanic language in your, you know, German spoken in Europe by apparently like the Satan of modern history, as we talked about a few episodes ago, his entire concern and the concern of the Roosevelt administration is they very surreptitiously in the 1930s ramped up interception of all kinds of communications into and out of the United States, as well as the Americas and Asia was in the Japanese. <laughs> so, you so know, what's, it's, what's the what's behind this? Right? What, what's why? behind this? What's behind this is that we did not go into World War II in order to quote stop, stop the Nazis, you know, punch, punch Nazis or something right, like right. Captain America did on the comic book cover. We went into World War II and notice the sequence in which we went into it against Japan and then against Germany, mm-hmm. kind of by extension. We went into it as a matter of, of power politics in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. why. It makes sense. That was our major, major concern. So and our major enemy was Japan. It's a little uh, Commodore, Commodore Dory? Is that who it was? Who opened Japan? I can't remember who it was. Commodore um, Matthew, shoot. Uh, is eh. it Perry? Perry, it is. Yeah, yep, yep, it's yep. Perry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's just an extension 
of – and then this is uh, Monroe Doctrine, right? So we're extending the Monroe Doctrine across the Pacific, uh, deciding that we have the right <laughs> we, to open yeah, it up. Well, and then years later, now we got to protect what we've opened. Uh, China in all of this is also a fascinating scenario, right? Because that's still British uh, for a lot of this. And then as it leads into World War II, right? Is that correct? Well, Hong Kong is. Shanghai is a kind of free trade zone. Much of the rest of it is effectively controlled by Japan. And then there is also a civil war going on as of the 30s in China. The, 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 the issue here is that we, we begin to perfect the capacity to read other gentlemen's mail right, right. in order to really, I mean, if you look at the steps that we took to help, if not to start, at least help to start a war with the Japanese for supremacy in the Pacific. Yeah, because what you're saying here is we saw it coming. Correct. Oh, those those are our words. major investments. And I, I mean, I've mentioned certain things about our run up to the war with Japan, but I think the significant thing here is that in order to do things that were really, I mean, the, everything that the Signal Intelligence Service was doing was by Friedman's own admission, illegal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because we were intercepting private communications of allies, of people we weren't at war with, but also of American citizens when it was convenient to us. And at first... They did this in order, quote, for training purposes, but then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And we began to intercept all kinds of things. And probably the listener has never heard that this existed. They, they probably heard of the NSA at least last week. They probably have never heard of this, no, but I we hadn't. were reading, our government was reading our mail if they wanted to. And if we were, say, Japanese descent Americans or something communicating with people in Japan, if they wanted to in like 1938. Okay. So apparently we're never going to go to war again, not in a world war in 1938, but, but parts of our government are getting ready for it with private backing and other nexuses that will exist after the war. Like, well, where do you get somebody that's really good at Japanese from? I guess you got to get him from a prestigious university. Maybe the prestigious university wants some money. Maybe they could get it from the War Department. Maybe they could get it from something that's kind of affiliated with us, but not exactly a government funder. So all of that is going on before the Second World War. And those methods are just going to grow after the war. All right. So just to be straight at it, uh, could we have yeah. prevented Pearl Harbor? Could we have stopped yes. it? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. We didn't have to embargo all oil to the Japanese, which we had done prior to that. And, I guess I'm uh, saying, did they? I mean, if they're if they're reading this much information, it seems that the you know, John Birch like people who suggest that uh, FDR knew this was coming, uh, yeah. allowed for it to happen so that we would enter the war. They've got some kind of leg to stand on. I mean, how could we be developing what will become our world class spy network, opening all this information and and have no idea yeah. what's going on? I mean, I guess it's possible. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. yeah. Well, I, I think it's also important to recognize something that is maybe a little hard unless you know a little bit about like the history of the West Coast states of the United States, but there is a debate. 40 years prior to Friedman about whether America will be an Atlantic or a Pacific power. Hmm. And the Navy resolves that in favor of being a Pacific power. And so both in the first world war and in the second world war and in the run-up to the second world war, the major concern of our code breakers is with the Japanese. Everyone else is secondary or tertiary, including in the run-up to the second world war, 
the Germans. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're just not that worried about, we're not as worried about Europe as we are about the Pacific. Well, I honestly, at the end of the day, you know, if Germany takes England, Germany takes England, Japan's the one fighting us on that other side. And I guess given how closed Japan was as a system, how much they were amping up into a first world power on purpose and what they really were planning in terms of what, what one Asia for all Asians and all this kind of stuff. It, it, if you're sitting there as the government of the United States, don't you kind of have to be aware of this? I mean, I, I don't plan to defend the devil here, but yeah. I kind of am a little. I think, I think the, the politics were fairly pure power politics in East Asia. We did not. And to this day, most people still don't know what the Japanese and the Chinese did to each other oh, in brutal. East Asia. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's Dan Carlin, uh, Hardcore History. Uh, uh, what is it? The Tsunami? Uh, so many in the East, it, it, most people don't know. You're right. And you don't right. want to know. I'll tell you right. if you're listening, you don't want to know. Right. But I think that, you know, that this is something that if you think about, okay, well, what, what are the death tolls that I know from World War II? Generally, the only one people are going to know is a figure for Jews who died in concentration camps. Mm-hmm. They won't know how many people died on the Eastern front, how many other people died in how many other kinds of camps, German, Japanese, American, otherwise. We don't really know any of that. And so also that ends up minimizing our efforts in the Pacific. And most people don't remember that we, we, that's where our colonial empire was. The Philippines, Hawaii, these are all places governed by Americans. I mean, the man that governs Japan directly after the Second World War, Douglas MacArthur, was before the Second World War, governor of the Philippines right. and marshal of the Philippine army. So there are continuities here that belie the way that we think about our history. The significance of that regarding your privacy is that your privacy was was practiced to be taken away from you in the name of things that you're not even aware we really fought for, such as military supremacy in the Pacific Ocean. That was the major investment. And that's that's where we were really at the end of the Second World War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We will shift, but that's where we were at the end of the war. The American um, colonial power at that point, I think, is is your strongest uh, thing for me to take away from here. We were already there. It was already yeah, our empire. Right. We right. know there's going to be a war. We want to extend our reach. This is our place to do that. And if you look at the history of, say, Japan, Korea, look at that. Uh, the following wars are more of the same agenda at the end of the day. Yeah. And that's part of why we have maintained the enormous military presence that we have in the East. It's not just because the communist one in China, which we honestly didn't do a whole lot about at the time. We did a lot less than we did for a lot smaller threats in much smaller countries in the Pacific. But we have maintained that military presence because we desired to dominate the Pacific. And you do that by holding things on both sides of it. Yeah. It reminds me of a commercial I saw back when I was watching TV, uh, U.S. Navy, a global force for good. And uh, yeah, the idea is that we're everywhere and that this is this is for your good. So, well, what next then? Our privacy is is beginning to be sucked away. Yeah, it is. And I think that this is something where if the listeners are really interested in what we've been doing the past couple of weeks and this week, you want to go look at what happened in the years 1947, 1948, 1949. Just in brief, 
what happens is that lots of things that we take for granted, such as the existence of the Central Intelligence Agency, ostensibly just abroad, the way that the modern FBI is targeted at both certain interstate crimes, but also at what has always been at least potentially political crime, meaning having the wrong thoughts, advocating for the wrong things, as well as the predecessors to what would in 1954 come to be called the National Security Agency. The distinctive for the sake of our privacy for today is that the National Security Agency is the successor to the Signal Intelligence Service in being interested, especially in forms of communication, not specifically in people. This will cause it to become, by the time the public becomes more broadly aware of it in the aftermath of Watergate in the mid-70s, by far, by far, the largest member of what's now called the intelligence community. So people know about the FBI and the CIA from movies, which historically the FBI and the CIA have um, consulted on. Okay. People don't generally know about the NSA, partly because its work has always been extremely expensive to do, requiring lots of, you know, people from burgeoning sciences that started to come into their own in the 1950s, like computer science, information technology, information theory, and partly because it is not explicitly interested in people as such. So that makes it seem in its own way sort of less sinister, perhaps. You're not being targeted (laughs) necessarily by the NSA. They're targeting your phone calls and your emails potentially, but not you. And this is going to be important, especially next week when we talk about the internet more broadly, because I, I think that part of people's surprise or outrage at the non-innocuous nature of the internet is very similar to if they learned about the National Security Agency, because they would, they would learn that the way that this has worked has not been some sort of, uh, you know, the, the biggest, baddest thing that receives the most money, that's the most hidden and the most interconnected with academic institutions and scientific research institutions and with lots of other powerful actors in our society has not been the CIA, for example. Okay. If you read a history of the CIA, right, obviously as sort of, you know, limited hangout as such a thing is, you still come away with the overwhelming impression which was echoed by many other intelligence agencies. And we got a really good look at this when the, when the Iron Curtain came down because we, we finally got to see what the Russians were saying about us. And they were constantly saying, the Americans are incompetent. <laughs> wow. Okay, that the British are susceptible to seduction by other men. The French are susceptible to seduction by women. The Germans, you can appeal to their greed. Don't worry so much about the Americans. They're just incompetent. Just a bunch of salesmen <laughs> hucking their wares. Okay. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's our, our naivete or our idealism or what it is. But foreign intelligence agencies are not in their own self-attestation, especially from the you know, former Warsaw Pact countries where we, we have their records. They're not scared of us. Something like the NSA is a much better projector 
and much more typical just by virtue of the the slice of the pie that it commands in in Washington for the for the actually competent parts of American power. And what it brings together are defense priorities, which certainly during, but also after World War II, just become a settled part of American political life, right? So before World War II, it's still somewhat normal to say, you know, I'm not even really sure we should have a standing army, but if we do have one, it should be small and mainly have, you know, posts in the West or something. (laughs) Okay. During and after World War II, it's a commonplace on all sides of the political spectrum with the exception of the libertarian left during the Vietnam War, that, you know, the the military is fine. It's fine the way it is. It's fine that it is. Um, And it's fine, perhaps, especially on the right, when it's big and when it has bases all over the world, as it really didn't prior to the world wars. So if I want to expand my capacity to know what people are doing, I will wisely do that somewhere inside the Defense Department, right? But not identified with any one specific branch. Therefore, the National Security Agency has both much bigger budgetary capacities, right? Because money is always at the heart of of these questions of power. But it also avoids the rivalry between the various branches of the military, each of which have their own, you know, legacy intelligence or something like intelligence operation, the NSA doesn't have to do that. It can unite with those military capacities, the research capacities of American academia, which is no longer being funded for the sake of, you know, largely by private donors for the sake of what's now quaintly called the liberal arts. It's going to be funded both by private donors, but also by assorted governmental means, whether the GI Bill and its extensions, student loans later on, but even direct infusion into research in things like the natural sciences and also business, or as Americans usually call it, management, so that we can figure out how to manage large numbers of people, such as are in the Defense Department when the Pentagon gets built, you know, in the 40s. We're going to manage those people and we're going to bring in academics, civilian academics, and they are going to put together enormous technological capabilities for knowing what is going on. Ostensibly, all of this is happening abroad. (laughs) All of this is aimed abroad. None of this, none of this, dear American listener, is aimed at you. None of this has anything to do with you. Okay. Ostensibly. Well, and it all sounds like, I mean, it's not very much the story they've sold us of America, but it does seem like pretty standard empire building. I mean, you just get your big best people together, you form some sort of school, you fund it well, you get the army yeah. in charge of it. I mean, this is, this is just the way you do it. So yeah. I don't yeah. know that I got a problem with that. I do have a curiosity. You mentioned the student sure. loans. Mm-hmm. Are the, so are, are, um, are the student loan, uh, debt situation, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, I don't know what they call them anymore. Uh, um, was that invented in order to fund this kind of thing? Is is that kind of the tie-in here? The student student loans are modeled on the GI Bill structurally, but expand enormously in the 1960s. 
All right. So what, they weren't created for funding is what I'm looking at. They were and not I, they were not created for funding, but what they do make possible is a much larger supply of whatever it is that that they want to incentivize. For example, you know, after 2001, they wanted to incentivize homeland security programs. These mm-hmm. kinds of things started to pop up at everything from community colleges to research institutions. So that flow of government funding into institutions that previously were much poorer and there, and there were many fewer of them. There are a lot of schools that have started since the 1950s, 1960s. Um, but that flow of federal funding enables uh, quote research to occur according to their predilection. And I think it is, it's very significant for one's general perspective on what academia is and what academics are for that the NSA is far and away the most academic of intelligence agencies. Hmm. They have had numerous different academic journals, not only narrowly on, say, cryptography, the writing of codes, or code breaking conversely, but on lots of kind of related things, pure mathematics, information theory, all of those have been subjects of academic debate and publication within the NSA. I mean, you can go online and find declassified versions of these things. So academia in the history of the NSA functions both as a source of people, but also as a dominant culture. So that tells you something about what academia is more broadly, not only that it's reliant on federal dollars, but also that it doesn't exist simply because there are smart people. Presumably, there were really smart people in America in like 1904. They just didn't work for the government. <laughs> they didn't live somewhere inside the beltway. They're, because funding and energy and time were allocated elsewhere, those smart Americans, whoever they were in 1904, were living and working elsewhere and doing other things. By you know 1958, 1974, those people are going to be, if they've been fast-tracked through our best institutions, they're going to be poured into something like the NSA for larger goals of, quote, national security. Which, you know, is, of course, for all the baddies abroad, Russians and Chinese, you know, the commies and all that, they're so bad. Um, And don't get me wrong, I'm not a fan of communism, uh, but it's going to start coming home. So is is there a... Is there a singular touch point when that happens? There isn't a singular touch point. And the reason for that is that there was always, all the way back to Herbert Yardley's Black Chamber in the First World War, there was always significant interplay between different government agencies. Sometimes it's in the nature of rivalry, right? So different military intelligence sections being rivals of one another. But often it's in the nature of your building is next to my building or my office is just on a different floor of the same building as your office. And you work over here and I work over there. And those kinds of interactions, the fact that the power is physically geographically concentrated in and around Washington, as well as funding, right? those suburban ring counties of Washington, especially on the Virginia side, some of those never went through a recession, even in 2008, when even according to government statistics, almost everywhere else in the country was in some some degree of recession economically. 
So there is no singular touch point because my capacity to intercept telephone calls will be valuable to all kinds of people. Right. And so this is not, it's not a matter of, okay, here's the specific directive issued by President Johnson in, you know, 67 that makes the NSA also a domestic surveillance agency. What they will find out as there is both disclosure, I think selective disclosure by agencies in the 1970s in order to kind of cover their behinds after Watergate, but also through investigation and uh, some of the raids carried out largely by the left, credit where credit is due by the left during the Vietnam period, we learned that the interplay between methodology, okay, interception of uh, radio communications, phone calls, satellite imagery, these things are, these, these are methods common to various agencies. The degree to which those agencies are aware of each other and cooperate with each other will be the degree to which that power is larger and more readily available to whoever possesses power. So if I can get to a point where the, I mean, I, I think that what is significant about the 1970s for the NSA and signal interception is that as what is then still called ARPANET is beginning to come online at various academic research institutions, you get the disclosure in James Bamford's The Puzzle Palace of the existence of the National Security Agency, like open, right? So obviously that involves some degree of collaboration on their part to let that happen, right? Because previously they didn't admit that it existed. If you're going to do that, you have now, if you're paying attention and just, you know, maybe read a newspaper every day and read the Bamford, Bamford's first book, there were two others after that and say the year 1980, you can put together something that's pretty obvious. We're now all going to be at first very unusual people and then more people in the 90s, and then by the time of smartphones, practically everyone all the time, we're going to be sending signals to each other constantly. We have the very largest intelligence agency in the United States has spent its entire life figuring out how to monitor communications, right? Electronic communications of various kinds. Could those two things maybe be brought into symbiosis with each other? Could those two things be maybe applied to each other? So it really doesn't take a rocket scientist or a cryptologist to figure out what's going to happen here, right? The disclosures that are going to be made by Edward Snowden, apparently, I mean, I don't think, you know, uniquely or individually, but also by people like William Binney, whom I think I mentioned last time, those disclosures that are made in the 2000s, really kind of like early Obama administration back before everything was racist. It was just a totally, if I don't know if anyone remembers that. <laughs> it was a time of hope it's, for it's many a, people. It's a foggy, foggy memory. Yeah, for it's me. foggy. It's before Trayvon, you know, um, oh. all that kind of stuff. Those disclosures, those are, those are not really things that if you were paying attention to anything in say the year 1980, you would be surprised by. Because the growth of the internet will simply, for the purposes of, you know, monitoring of communication, that, that's just the growth of data. Right. So the story of, okay, well, what happened to the internet and how did we all get corralled onto like a couple social media sites? That's all extremely predictable 
if you just knew the story of like the signal intelligence service, because you can go back and you can say, okay, well, they started breaking the law in this limited way. And then eventually they said, oh, we want this. And then this other part of the government offered them this. And then the embassy, our embassy in Japan said, hey, you know, guys, we think that this is going on. You might want to pay attention to this. And suddenly we're reading these people's mail. That sort of organic growth in monitoring is something that you could have foreseen if you knew even only a little bit in 1980. You wouldn't need someone to come out in public and then leave and flee to Russia or wherever in order to tell you, hey, this is going on because you already know that they have capacity. You already know that they are willing when there's any conflict between law, say the Communications Act of 1934, specifically forbidding the precise thing that the Signal Intelligence Service was doing. When there's a conflict between American law and what they do professionally, they will choose what they do professionally every single time, both because there's money, but also because there's livelihood and sense of purpose at stake. If I'm a cryptologist, I want cryptology to still be an enormous concern of the American government. So you don't, you don't really need, and I think people kind of rely on, and there, you know, there's a farce going on right now with this quote, Facebook whistleblower who just happens to, you know, be a democratic operative and, uh, you know, is also going to try to suppress right-wing content um, in time for midterms in 2022, at the very least on Facebook, because Facebook isn't suppressing hate speech enough. That's what she's being a whistleblower about. The function of whistleblowers, it's hard for me not to be cynical about them because you don't need them if you know a couple facts and a little bit of history, it's not astrology. I mean, I don't, I don't have to say something super esoteric. I can just say, Hey, the government knows how to watch all of this. Hey, we're all doing a lot more of this very thing that they know how to watch. I wonder what's going to happen next. Well, I mean, if Al Gore said that they invented it, then why would not they have invented it for this <laughs> yeah, reason? That's right, 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 right. Precisely. I mean, it also, it, I don't know if this note really connects or not, but, um, you know, I spent a good amount of time following Silicon Valley talking heads for the sake of management, information, mm-hmm. theory, these yeah. very kinds of things that I do find yeah. fascinating. And what what kind of surprised me often is is how many of them um, were Ivy Leaguers uh, tied to some of the elite schools in other ways. Uh, th- those who go on and like, create the greatest stuff, they come from households that are already kind of uh, elite level households. Yeah, so the right. whole development of Silicon Valley, sure, there's people that go there and have nothing and do their best and work hard. But the system as a, as a seed is right. very much an East Coast power generational system. Now, when I say generational, uh, you know, generations exist, and that means that like three down, usually they forget what was going on and make up their own new thing. So I'm not saying there's actually a tie between these now. In fact, I think that's some of what the war is. You can correct me if you disagree, but I think you know Silicon Valley wants a lot more power um, than it than it's had. It wants a bigger seat at the table, um, yeah. and and rightly so because they're the seed that's been planted by this very uh, what uh, data harvesting government, right? Uh, and now its right. child maybe is is taking the taking the reins. Yeah. And I think that something you can see personally is that you move from a system, which is a political system, which let's say certainly before the first world war, even after the advent of the federal reserve is still largely controlled by political dynasties in most States, but especially in the Northeast, which is still the vast majority of the American population. 
you know, let's say in 1900, is still concentrated in the 13 colonies, but especially the Northeastern uh, states. Those political dynasties are key to who gets picked for what in any given state. So that system is going to be replicated of bosses and machines, uh, both within cities, but also within states in any given place, kind of depending on who the, you know, so Colorado is settled largely by Northerners. So it's going to politically resemble a Northern state like Indiana or New York or something. Southern California is largely settled by Southerners and on and on. What happens in the two world wars And I think that this is sort of key to some of the attitudes that you get, even talking heads openly saying, especially since 2020, that like a callousness or an indifference or really an open hatred of some enormous number of Americans. And this is not, as I've said before, this is not actually unique to whites, at least since vaccination became an issue because some of the intersectionality is getting shifted around. We move from a system where we have sort of personalized yes, nepotistic, but homegrown families that rule various institutions. Okay. The Episcopal church controls the Navy chaplaincy, for example. All of this is very informal, but it's kind of traditional and it goes through all kind of different parts of American society. As the government grows, And then the government becomes the source of investment for things like the growth of Florida or the growth of Texas or the growth of California's population, but especially the growth of things like Silicon Valley. Power gets much more anonymized and becomes bureaucratic. And some of that is an inadvertent effect of civil service becoming a profession instead of a matter of political favors. But it's also a matter of the Roosevelt administration especially makes it possible for somebody, William Friedman's family were immigrants from Eastern Europe, for example, who has no particular political connections, that is personal connections, to make a life and to become very powerful and influential by means of government service. And that is, that is a really important change is that as the government gets bigger, the government is able through its various selection processes to make people important who were not important before and couldn't be because they didn't have just plainly speaking, the connections to be certainly right, not on right, a right. national level. Well, you get the so, funding to do the work you would do and all that, right? Yeah. And so like in the case of Silicon Valley, something that we talked about a long time ago, which is the history of venture capital, venture capital firms usually start out as East coast money, but they morph through investment priorities largely driven by government funding into the sciences and computer science and stuff. They morph into shops that are open on the basis of money, not on the basis purely of connection. And the places of connection shift from, say, your local Episcopal church, generally kind of the ruling class's place of connection prior to the world wars, to the school that you went to, which is no longer sort of an extension of your church, Yale Congregationalist, Harvard Unitarian, and on and on, it moves to the institution itself, which is open to everybody, regardless of familial connection, regardless of religious affiliation. And that is why I think you get things like you know, you notice that, hey, everyone in Silicon Valley has a degree from an Ivy or like an Ivy equivalent, like Stanford. Mm -hmm. Or, hey, it's weird how it used to be that almost anybody was on the Supreme Court. And now 
you have to go to like these specific law schools in order to get on the Supreme Court. So those places of connection become much more formal and atomized. And so the people who are doing the watching are themselves people who are often very much cut off from where and who they came from. And so their, their sense of belonging is not like your own where you came from a certain place and these are your people and your parents live here and you live here and this is the church you go to and those kinds of local connections. These are not local people. Their allegiance is primarily to the system that gives them the sense of status and belonging that they do possess. It sounds to me like you just don't want to be safe, Dr. Koontz. <laughs> I know. Well, I just, I guess I just don't care about the fifth commandment or something. It depends on who you talk to, but yeah, I mean, I think that the way that this is usually sold to us is for our safety or for our, more often the term is security, but meaning roughly the same thing and never really defined, but in view of, you know, nebulous threat, a equals Japan, B equals Muslims, C equals parents complaining about what school boards are doing in view of those nebulous threats, this group of atomized, sad bureaucrats will protect us from ourselves. Don't you think they can? <laughs> I think that they can protect themselves. I am not sure what they uh, know about me or what their sympathies might be mm. or whether they have any interest in protecting me. I do think that you have figures who have a different sense of why they went into government service who are trying to do what they think is best for American people, right? And that's how you do get people who, whatever their you know level of sincerity is, do try to expose some of the most heinous things that various government agencies do. I doubt that that is actually possible with the system that we have built because it is not actually built to secure constitutional liberties or processes, it is built to maintain things that are extremely nebulous, like public health or homeland security, in the name of which, because they're cloudy and uncertain, anything could be done, even things against my constitutional liberties or against constitutional processes. Which brings to mind for me, uh, 1984 again, and the various ministries that are that are there that are yeah. you know holding pins for um, whatever the the Big Brother wants to do. Uh, the rhetoric then is is maybe where I would want to focus on this that yeah. that the idea of safety and security isn't something that anybody really believes in. It is <laughs> it's a form of rhetoric, right? I mean, I should say anybody yeah. The, the, yeah. the common person who believes in it is is the useful fool, right? The, the sheep that's being herded. Yeah. But the people who are talking about safety and security right. don't really believe in safety and security for the American populace. Otherwise, 40% of them wouldn't be, you know, being targeted as, as terrorists for just kind of disagreeing with a genetic experiment. Right. Yeah. I, I think that if they believed in security, they, and they're smart people, right? Nobody's saying they're not. If they believed in those things and they were actually the sorts of actually intelligent, not merely, you know, capable at math or computer science sort of automatons that the government is looking for, if they had the capacity to think like free men, they would realize that certain things are very, very, very bad for the security of our constitutional liberties. And they would do everything in their power to destroy anything that was destroying those liberties. 
since they do not, I have to assume that they are completely uninterested and perhaps entirely cynical about the concept of security. Because at that point, you have to look again at what people do. And at a point where you realize that they are potentially intercepting any and all communications, if they feel it's worthwhile, but it's okay, don't worry, it's just the metadata, they didn't actually listen to your phone call. When they're doing that, you have to assume that they really have no interest in the Constitution that at least some of them have sworn to uphold and defend against all enemies, foreign and domestic. It seems that they have no scruple, is what it comes down right. to. There, there's not right. really an ethic in, in, in any way. It also, just on, on the, the safety side of things, I mean, I'm not, I'm not by any means high on immigration as a political topic. I, I don't know that I've ever even talked about it before. Um, that being said, it would seem to me that any empire concerned with safety and security, one of its primary things it would do would be control <laughs> immigration very strictly yeah. so as to right. stop the free flow of bad ideas that would undermine the safety and security. You know, if, especially if you're if you're bringing in immigrants from countries and or religious areas that have a direct I don't know, uh, death wish for you. Uh, and, and this can come from whole sorts of levels from, you know, whether we're going to talk about the uh, the Mexican uh, drug cartels uh, or uh, or uh, jihadists. It really doesn't matter. The point, again, is that if you really were concerned about these things, uh, the government would look different than it does. It would do things differently totally. than it does. Our bridges right. would be getting rebuilt. Our streets would be getting repaved. That's safety and security in my daily life. Right. And, and the, you know, what's going on in um, Afghanistan, as much as I understand the pain some of our military men felt on their withdrawal and all this, I, I get that. But that's not about safety and security the way that these other things that are very local, uh, very impactful are. And then from there, to, to see or even have it be the possibility that the entire existence of the internet is just to catch all our information. I mean, that's, that's anything but safety and secure. What that is, is, uh, is tyranny straight up. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it is also, I mean, in the nature of communication, you know, it, it is, is an attempt to control at least to observe. And with the knowledge simply that you are being observed apart from all other action to control thought and expression and that is so corrosive of a human soul in all kinds of ways. I mean, it could erase bad think and, and bad write and bad say, but it could make you simply what I think is extremely common in modern American life, extremely cynical about what you're saying and thinking because you never can be honest. That's right. Yeah. People behave differently when they're being watched. Yeah, totally. And that idea means that as I, you know, the analogy I was using last time was about living in a small town that either changes you in a way which is very untrue and kind of weird, which I think is why often people are so brittle when they're doing and saying the things that they think, you know, a good person, according to the media does and says, right. Uh, they're fine with being watched by the NSA because they have nothing to hide, quote unquote. That is warping you in a certain way, in a different way, and probably more commonly for the listeners to this show, whether it's in your workplace where you're being surveilled or, you know, what I'm talking about with a small town or, you know, just the NSA, you know, perhaps 
you realize that the way that you're being warped is that you are being cramped hmm. and it, it makes you more impatient, but also uh, more suspicious. Lots of things are being changed about you in ways that should not be the case if you felt that you could say what you actually think and do what you actually believe is the right thing to do. The, the obtaining of compliance seems to be one of their biggest priorities, which is why I think so many of these alphabet soup agencies operate in ways rather explicitly, and we'll say this with the internet next week, rather explicitly demonically. Because, and I say that for this reason, because observing their history and what they actually do, I can only conclude that they want what demons want, which is compliance from potentially possession of, but certainly compliance from someone they do not already have, something they n- not, aren't already. They want to use that to control it. And so they want to control what you say and control what you think. And that is simply not the way that goodness behaves. Goodness does not have to compel in that way because it is itself beautiful and attractive and wholesome, right? But evil needs to compel. It it needs that in order to accomplish its purposes. And so anyone that's watching you that much, you really have to stop and think, why are you like this? Do you have nothing that you would rather be looking at or doing other than me? And we understand watching when the stuff is our own and I'm, you know, maybe watching because I thought I, you know, maybe there's, there's a robber right in my house or something. That kind of watching makes sense because we're defending what is ours. But to look into someone else's life to what is utterly private and personal in the name cynically of security there is something very, very dark about that. And the idea that that is at the heart of the largest slice of our intelligence budget, as well as who knows what else, that's what very much unsettles me. Yeah, sure. Voyeurism is an ugly, ugly thing. We got two more points on your list of notes, and we are we're past our time. So I want to give you a chance to hit them, though. Uh, sure. Just dealing with the the and you already kind of talked about this that yeah. scientific development through the schools is now forever enshrined or entwined with our our military and with the funding that the government brings. So in one very real sense, our university system is just another extension of the government. And I think we kind of did touch on this with the series on education, though maybe not not as explicitly, though we did call them concentration camps, uh, talking about the high schools. But I'm now thinking again, college, you know, these are the, what, the, 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 the developmental areas wherein the cream of the crop will be pulled from for the sake of the great empire. And um, again, I don't, I don't know that I got an actual problem with that. It's historically like empires do this. It's the lying about it. It's the pretension about it. And then like you point out, the voyeurs and the overextension of powers, the attempt to control what is really ultimately naturally uncontrollable. Um, yeah. So there's that. And then uh, this bit about the symbiosis of the disappearing privacy with their increasing knowledge of everything. Maybe that's just yeah. kind of the, the capstone on this all. So um, what do you got there? Yeah. So the, la- the last point first, and it's simply that there is a relationship between your now relative lack of privacy with their now relative knowledge of everything. 
and their desire now to know what substances go into your body, not for your actual welfare, like food. There's no obesity uh, reduction mandate envisioned by any authority in the United States, but a vaccination mandate so that your privacy now no longer even extends to your own bloodstream. So those uh, processes are, you know, this is the stuff of the wildest uh, pamphlets of the John Birch Society, um, whom I wasn't slandering earlier in talking about the Freemasons. I'm just saying, (laughs) I think they overemphasized it a little bit. But, you know, this idea that they want to control your bloodstream is the wildest stuff of a John Birch pamphlet in, you know, 1964. And uh, now it's coming to a workplace near you. So uh, their security and knowledge and your privacy are things that can't exist in the same universe. You've either got privacy or they've got security and knowledge. And that from- plays into the education thing, which yeah, yeah. I think no one should have been surprised by the reaction of academic institutions to COVID stuff because they should have understood a long time ago that academia exists at the size that it does and with the scope that it does with natural sciences and management vastly overemphasized relative to their traditional place, if they even had a place in the case of management in a traditional liberal arts curriculum. No one should have been surprised when academia and academics personally simply served in any way they possibly could and generally enforced far more stringently than surrounding areas and municipalities, COVID regulations. Academia exists at the size and with the scope that it does in modern America as a result of the government's need for an investment in certain priorities, both human and topical. That's why it's there. It's not there because there are smart people. There have always been smart people. (laughs) <laughs> there may, in fact, depending on you know things that we've talked about with the literacy of 19th century Americans, have been far more smart people in the past yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when those uh, investment priorities didn't exist. Academia is what it is, not in order for you to demonstrate your intelligence or to have your intelligence trained. It may do that as a byproduct of its main process, but its main process is as a resource pool and investment opportunity for government and other corporate agencies to create the people that they need to create and the buzz that they need to create. There's usually an academic study and then it filters into the media and then it filters into your head that they need for their security, knowledge, and extension. That's what it's for. Academia does not exist. Those institutions don't exist for the sake of knowledge anymore. They simply don't. That may be a byproduct and that's wonderful. And I got knowledge from academic institutions, but sometimes it was literally a byproduct. That is, I just wander around in the library and find out things I'm never learning about in class. Or sometimes it's, you know, there are well-intentioned good people who are seeking wisdom in those places, but that's not what they're for. It's not what the system's for. Where are we going next week? That's not what the system's for. We're going into the birth of the internet and people getting online and then people becoming part of what is online and what that means for everyone (laughs) next week, um, because I want to take this down from, you know, the National Security Agency and its predecessors 
to people's everyday life apart from Edward Snowden. Resistance is futile. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org.